the world this week, this weekend, in synagogues and temples, any place that Jews are celebrating, they are hearing the story of Ruth. The one, uh, the one person in the Bible, the one, the one uh, woman in the Bible who has a book of the Bible named for her. And although I didn't do a exhaustive search, off the top of my head, I'm thinking that it might be the book of Ruth that enables the Bible as a whole to pass the Bechdel test. If you're familiar with the Bechdel test, named after great cartoonist and writer, Alison Bechdel, uh, it's a, um, it was proposed in a rather tongue-in-cheek way, a minimal way of judging a film by its uh, embrace of female characters. Does it have two female characters who have names, who speak to each other about something beside a man? There may be other times in the Bible where this happens, but off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Anyway, we'll get there in a moment. I want to tell you a bit of the, the book of Ruth. Um, so Ruth was a, um, a, person, a woman of the, of the country of Moab. Moab and Judah, or Judea, did not, um, did not get along. Like many close neighbors, they were intention, mutual suspicion, they were enemies, really. And, um, and uh, this is the land in which she lived. And a woman named Naomi came with her husband and her grown sons from Judea, the land of the Israelites, to, to Moab because things were bad in Judea. And they lived there for many years, during which Naomi's sons married two Moabite women. Who else were they going to marry? Orpah and Ruth. And then, as more time went on, Naomi's husband died. And then both of her sons died, living, leaving her and Orpah and Ruth, three widows, none of whom had children, a former mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, not even bound by kinship to one another anymore. Naomi was full of grief and bitterness. In fact, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. And she said to her, former daughters-in-law. We are not bound anymore. You are Moabites. Go. Go back to your families. Go to your mother's homes here in the land that you know and find husbands and marry again. I'm going back home to the people I know, the people I left years ago. Orpah wept and hugged and kissed Naomi and went back to her family. But Ruth Ruth did not. And this is, if you know anything from the book of Ruth, just one thing, this is probably the passage you know. She said, in the language of the King James Version, entreat me not to leave you, or to return, to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. 
For whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my God. Where you die, that is where I will die. And there will I be buried. And she swears. I want, I want nothing to separate us. I pledge that nothing will separate us. And so she goes with Naomi into what is a former home for Naomi, but for, for Ruth is a strange land. She will be the only Moabite woman in a land of people to whom her people are hostile and who are hostile to her. She knows nothing about it except Naomi. And she doesn't have any skills. When Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back and get married, she was saying, do the things that women are supposed to do. What is she supposed to do in this new land where there's no one to marry who are of her own people? Well, she starts at the bottom. She's a gleaner because it, it says in biblical law to the farmers, to people who are, who are reaping and collecting the grain, you mustn't be super careful. If you drop something, some grain, don't go back and pick it up. Leave it for the gleaners who come before you. It's sort of like saying, you know what, if you forget and put a deposit bottle in the trash, don't go back after it. Somebody really desperate needs that nickel. And that's what she's doing. She's being a beggar. She's the lowest of the low in this new land where she knows nothing. I was thinking about Ruth when I, when I was thinking about, um, about my topic today, which came about actually in another way. It came about when I had an experience that I'm sure you've had too. You're, uh, you're driving along or you're riding in a car and you pull up behind another car and it has a sticker on the back and it says, please be patient, student driver. That person, you are now pleased to know, is just learning how to drive. The person just a couple of feet from your own bumper. Now, it's a sweet plea. Please be patient. This person is learning how to do what you're doing right now, or what the driver of your car is doing right now. You were once that learner. You studied what you could study about the rules of the road in the book. You learned where everything is in the car. You practiced in a parking lot or something. And that was all you could learn of driving without getting on the road. And then there you were, a student driver, not really knowing what you're doing yet, but it's the only way to learn it. And here's someone else doing it, maybe for the first time. If you are in a hurry, or you're a nervous driver yourself, you might wish that there were not a novice driver right there, so close to you on the road. Somebody who hasn't even passed a driving test yet. But what can we do? People have to learn, and that's the only way to do it. In fact, in California, you have to drive a certain number of hours out on the actual road before you can pass your test. Now, if that doesn't make you nervous, let's raise the stakes a little. There aren't only student drivers, there are student doctors. <laughs> and many thousands of times, including possibly on you or me 
or somebody we love, the person who's operating is doing it for the first time. I mean, they practice, right? They've been in school for years. They have other ways of preparing themselves, and they're not alone. They've got, uh, they've got an experienced expert doctor there with them, just like the student driver has an instructor alongside, just in case anything goes haywire. But still, there you are, cut open in a life and death situation possibly, and this person is doing their very first appendectomy or heart bypass operation. Now, doctors do not put stickers on saying that they are students. <laughs> oh, you're coming in for an emergency appendectomy. It's my first one. It's a good thing. We don't want to know. And not only would that make the patient extremely nervous, but, you know, people might throw their weight around and say, uh, 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 maybe not for an emergency appendectomy, but for anything that can wait, I'll wait till the next surgeon comes along, please. One who's been doing this for a while. And then what would we do? It's the only way to turn student doctors into expert doctors is to let them do this stuff. Under supervision, with help, but... Sometime has to be the first, and it's going to be a real live person there. That's how we get new doctors. So I was just thinking about that sweetness of that little note. Please be patient, student drivers. What we could extend to one another if we remembered that we're all new at something and we're doing something that makes us very vulnerable and inexpert, like Ruth just showing up in this new country. Like maybe we're in a new country. We don't speak the language very well, or we speak with an accent and everybody can tell that we're from somewhere else. Or, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a little sign saying, you know, this is my, I'm new at doing whatever it is on the job. You know, I'm a new manager. I'm fixing a transmission for the first time this week. And then all the other things, like, I'm new at being a partner. I'm just figuring this thing out, so is my partner. We don't really know what we're doing. We've had friendships and relationships, but now we're trying to be one another's life partners, and we're figuring it out as we go. We're messing up. Please be patient. And parenting, oh my gosh. Every time you think you've got it down, the kid changes. <laughs> and you're having to learn it all over again. With the only comfort being, well, by the time I get this developmental stage down, it'll be over. <laughs> and you know, I think kids get this a lot better than adults. They're a lot more easygoing about always being students. They're students, right? And, and it's marked for them that they're always learning something new. They're supposed to be learning something new. And there's all, those, there's all those sort of little rites of passage. Oh, you finished your first year of kindergarten. Here's your promotion ceremony. And you go to a new school then at the end of elementary school and on and on. And, and each year you have new teachers and a new subject. And nobody expects you to know geometry just because you know algebra. They know. It's new. You're a student. You're learning. And then they graduate, and every graduation speaker in history says something to them like, 
You're graduating, but you don't stop learning. Learning is a lifelong process, but all the adults are kind of thinking, I've got to have it all together now. I'm not a student anymore. I can't wear that little sticker saying, it's just my first year of high school, or it's just, I'm just in college. No, I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, but we don't. We're new, and we're students, and I think if we could wear these little stickers or look around and remember that each of us has an invisible one, things could be very different for us. You know, Ruth is a, is a good emblem here, here for Pride Month. We've just started Pride Month, you know. And um, that passage between Ruth and Naomi has been misunderstood oftentimes as a, as a love song between women, quoted in, in um, lesbian uh, com commitment ceremonies and so on. Um, and it's not true. They're not, they're not lovers. They're not uh, romantic partners. But they are partners. And it is a declaration of love and devotion. Absolutely. Um, and so it seems right. There's something, there's something queer about the book of Ruth. There's something queering about this story. That it's saying, these two people who have no connection anymore, all the complex obligations of kinship in the ancient peoples of Moab and Judea, they don't apply for former uh, uh, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. These two women have no connection. But they're saying we are going to be connected for the rest of their, our lives. That's already stepping outside the expected, the bounds. And then there's Ruth going so boldly into such a strange place. She's saying, this is who I am, a Moabite woman, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm not even maybe welcome in Judah except in, in Naomi's household, but here I go. She's a good queer emblem. And then, too, for people who are cisgender or heterosexual, and even people who aren't, you may have noticed that, as I said a couple weeks ago when I was talking about our new flag, um, that challenge of whom to welcome and how to welcome them and how to recognize our common humanity, it keeps broadening. So you think you've got it down, you know? You think, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm fine with people who are gay and lesbian, bisexual, I got that, oh, I get transgender, and then it, it kind of keeps growing. We joke about we're gonna run out of letters, you know? <laughs> We've got an A for asexual. I, I need to know what that is if I want to be truly welcoming to people who are asexual or oh, maybe I notice I'm ace and I never even knew that was a word. Or there's demisexual, there's inter intersex, which is a little different but often has common cause with LGBTQIA folks. There's people who are pansexual and omnisexual and who can tell you the difference between those things. And there's people who are non-binary in their gender identity. and you know, even the folks who've been in the LGBT community for a long time say, this is challenging. I'm a student. I'm a student driver. 
I thought I knew what I was doing, and now I'm messing up. I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to be welcoming. I'm trying to use the right pronouns, and I'm not sure what I'm doing. And wouldn't it be great if we encouraged each other to do that? If we just recognized, you know, there's only one way to learn to drive, and there's only one way to learn how to relate to other people, and that's to do it. And you have mentors, and you have books, and you have good friends who will tap you on the shoulder and say, almost but not quite, let me show you how to do that. But then you just do it. What a wonderful thing to commit ourselves to for Pride Month, wherever we fall in that spectrum of letters. Now, the moral of the story of Ruth, according to the Bible, seems to be Ruth, this stranger, this rather despised and distrusted person as a Moabite, she comes to Judah. She does marry, again, a Judean man, thanks to a little finagling by her former mother-in-law. And the Bible tells us she becomes a very important person. Here's where it closes. It says, and Ruth and her new husband had the son, a son named Obed. And Obed's son was Jesse. And Jesse's son was David. In just a few generations, we have gone from the Moabite to the king of Israel. Ruth is right there in the heart of the Jewish story. And then the Christians will come along and pick up that story and say, and from David, you can trace the generations in a direct line to Jesus. So that seems to be a reassuring pat on the back to those of us who are willing to struggle, to do something new and risky, to be students even when we thought we were all grown up, out of school, and we're supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to know what we're doing in our jobs. We're supposed to know what we're doing as parents. We're not supposed to mess up our friendships. And yet we kind of feel like we're just faking it till we're making it. It's saying, you know what? Even the king of Israel comes from that place. So go ahead, take that risk. And be gentle with each other because we're all wearing that, that little sticker. And be brave with one another because everybody's wearing that sticker. You need their patience, you need their grace. They need yours. One more thing. To me, the moral of this story of Ruth, beyond the lovely welcome of immigrants, the rapprochement between two peoples who had been at war with one another and had tension with one another, beyond that encouragement to queer your community a little, to challenge yourself and the people around you by being yourself, I think there's also a lesson there about where we meet God, 
where we meet the holy, the sacred, the mystery in Albert Einstein's formulation. Because isn't it out on the edge of what we know? You know, what we don't let kids do, but that we can fall into when we're all grown up, is we stop. We say, I'm fine the way I am. I don't need to push myself out of that comfort zone. And unless we're dropped right into it, like Naomi, because her husband died, and her sons died, and she was far from home. Unless we're dropped into it, we might never push ourselves. And this story is saying, do it, because what is outside you, what you have yet to discover, that very borderline between you as you are now and you as you can become, that's God. That's holiness. Isn't that what being holy is, seeking the holy is, is seeking to be more than what we are right now? Seeking to do more than we imagined we could do? Saying, oh, I thought these were the boundaries of me, but they're actually farther out. But to get there, we have to take these risks. We have to be in ignorance. We have to be a student. And it really, really helps if the people around us recognize that and encourage that and say, what a brave thing. A little hard to be around sometimes. A little risky to be students around each other, to be just learning. But I'll be patient with you as you grow yourself, as you grow into the possibilities that we call the spirit of life, that we call the mystery, that we call God. So may we do for one another and for the sake of all our lives.